We're in a series on prayer, and, and we have come to now the, the third uh, sermon in, in this particular series, and we're going to look this morning at the posture of prayer. Now, when I mention those words, I would imagine that your mind immediately goes to certain physical postures. And I'm sure that you're like me. You've looked for ways in your life to connect with God. Now, you may or may not be a believer in Jesus Christ. But I would imagine at some point or another, whether you are or are not, you have tried in some way to connect with whatever or whomever you believe is out there. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, those of us that are here that are like that, we, we connect with God through prayer um, by talking with Him, and we try a variety of things. In fact, we try a variety of postures. Some of us have probably thought that if, if you're really going to connect with God, you must do that in some particular way or another. We did a prayer survey recently, and many of you were able to participate in that. And out of, I believe it was 79 total responses, so a decent number representing our church, out of 79 total responses, some of those questions were geared toward the posture of prayer. What is it that you do? 6% of those who responded say that you kneel to pray. 6%. Now, that's interesting to me. There was only, I think it was five responses out of 79. 6%. Compared to, there was a national survey that, that was the same exact thing, compared to 29% of Christians nationwide. I'm not sure if we're afraid we kneel down, we're not going to get back up. I'm not sure um, if you just got out of the habit of doing that, I have no idea. But it's interesting that, that we typically uh, are not kneelers to pray. Um, and obviously that national survey includes a variety of, of, of Christian denominations. 92% of us say that we pray silently. That's, that's the overwhelming majority, that we pray silently. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only way you pray, but you indicate that that is one of the ways that you pray. About 90% of Christians nationwide pray silently, so, so you're, you're about average. How about that? You're average. 34% of you say that, that you pray aloud. You, you say the words out loud, 34%, compared with 47% of Christians nationwide. So are we below average? I'm not sure what we are there, but 34%. No one that responded to our particular survey lights candles when you pray, compared to 12% of people, uh, Christians rather, nationwide that, that do that. No one uses incense, compared with 3% of Christians nationwide. It's interesting to note the, the different postures that we attempt. Some of us, very few of us, kneel. I would guess then, maybe you're standing. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're sitting. Uh, may, maybe you're, you're doing something else. You're suspended in the air. I'm not sure how you're... You're praying, but, but, but you mostly, according to the surveys, you pray not kneeling, and you pray silently. Now, obviously, I'm thankful that the Lord hears our prayers, whether we speak them verbally or not. But it's interesting how we try different things to connect with God. I wonder what really is God looking for. A survey like that can be manipulated to say whatever you want it to say, but I wonder what is God really looking for? What should be our posture in prayer? Now, there's a verse in Luke chapter 11, and if you want to turn there with me, feel free. I will tell you that we'll be spending the majority of our time focused on Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. But if you want to look at sort of our, our theme verse for this entire series, it's in Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, verse 1. 
And this refers to Jesus. I believe you'll see this on the screen behind me. He, that's Jesus, was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's what we're going for. And I will tell you that every single time at the introduction of these sermons on this series, because I want you to understand that we are not looking to each other to learn how to pray. We are looking to Jesus and the words that he taught us and what he gave us in order to learn how to pray. That's our goal. That's our heart. You may be confused by prayer. You may be frustrated by it. You may have a great prayer life. But no matter where you stand this morning, I want us to turn our hearts toward the Lord and say, Lord, you teach us to pray. I could give you lots of little lessons and tips and things like that that I've read about, but they pale in comparison to what we learn from the Lord. So that's the goal of this series, to learn from the master of prayer. And what we're doing is we're, we're working our way through the Lord's Prayer that's found over in Matthew chapter 6. So flip over with me if you've got your Bible still handy. Matthew chapter 6. And what we've seen so far is the priority that Jesus placed on prayer. So that a couple of weeks ago. That he was a praying man. That though he is the Son of God, he prayed on a regular basis. You think, well, if anybody didn't need to pray, it would be God himself in human flesh. But he prayed all the time. So we looked at the priority of prayer. Then last week we looked at the problems that we can encounter in prayer uh, and, and, and pride and so on, uh, being, and insincerity being among them. This week as we look at the posture of prayer, let's read together, let's look at together this, this model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, beginning in verse 9. And many of you, uh, in a particular translation, maybe not the one you have in front of you or the one you'll see on the screen, could repeat this or or recite this prayer, but let's look at it together. Verse 9 of chapter 6. Therefore, Jesus says, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. And some translations will add that last part for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen now i would imagine that many uh, whether you grew up in church or not have heard that prayer and likely could recite it most of you probably in the king james uh, and i think it says their trespasses just a fancy word i like that but but it's it, many of you could recite that uh, now now what we learned last week was that Jesus wants us to have nothing absolutely nothing to do with mindless and mechanical prayer. So what he provides here in the Lord's prayer is is not some prayer to be repeated without any meaning. Nor is it a good luck charm. Now I, I, I brought up last week that I used to serve as a chaplain for my alma mater my high school alma mater's football team back in Louisville. And before every game they would recite together all kneeling there in the locker room after the coach has given them the pep talk the Lord's Prayer in the King James. They were good. And, and they would recite it, and yet at the whole time I'm thinking, this for most of them, and I can't judge their souls, but for most of them I imagine doesn't mean a whole lot. For some of them it was just mindless and mechanical. For others it was kind of good luck charm. Well, if we say this, maybe we'll win, or maybe we won't get hurt tonight, you know, whatever it may be. But, but we learned last week that Jesus wants us to have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with mindless, mechanical, good luck charm kind of prayers. And so this is not a prayer that is meant to necessarily be repeated verbatim. Now let me tell you that and, and give you the disclaimer. I mean necessarily. Just because you say this prayer verbatim doesn't mean you're wrong. But just because you do doesn't mean you're right. hope you understand where I'm coming from. This really serves for us as a model prayer. 
So, so there is permission to say these exact words, but the overall point of what Jesus is giving us is a pattern. It's a model that serves as a guide for us in prayer. So whether you say these exact words or not, our goal is to follow the example that Jesus gives as he lays this out. And it begins with having the proper posture toward God, which is contrasted with what we learned last week in verses 5 through 8, which is the posture that the hypocrites and the idolaters took, which was one of of standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, one of of just saying a lot of words so that maybe you'll be heard. He's contrasting that posture with what he begins with in verse 9. Their sin was not their standing. So if you stand and don't kneel to pray, it's not a sin. If you sit and you don't kneel to pray, so if the 94% of you who are not kneeling to pray are feeling a little guilty right now, well, maybe I've got to have a different posture. That's not the point. The point is the posture of our hearts. Because I've come really to believe that our physical posture in prayer does not always reflect, nor does it dictate, the true approach that we take toward God. And I also believe it's true that our approach toward God is really what dictates and purifies any physical posture we may take toward the Lord. So it's not our physical posture that determines our approach toward the Lord. You can be kneeling in prayer and your heart be as far from God as a person who doesn't know Him at all. You, you can be standing in prayer and really not be praying, but it's our, it's our approach toward the Lord that gives dignity, that gives purity to any physical posture we may take. So I want to give you this morning, how do we ensure proper posture in prayer? And I want you to remember one simple sentence, and I want you, if you can, write it down. Some of you are note takers, some of you are not. On the back of your bulletin, you can fill in blanks. How do you maintain proper posture? How do you ensure proper posture in prayer? I think it's simple. We'll learn from verse 9 itself. Approach God with eagerness and awe. Eagerness and awe. Verse 9 says, Therefore you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven. We're going to focus on that little part this morning. Our Father in heaven. Eagerness and all. Two elements here to consider, and don't miss the balance that Jesus provides here at the beginning of this prayer. God is as close and loving as a father should be, but he's also infinitely great, and he rules from heaven. Our Father in heaven. So we can approach him with eagerness because he's our Father, and we approach him with all because he is in heaven. Now, on the back of your bulletin, you'll notice two little boxes. There's nothing there that you're going to see on the screen to fill in. Now, for some of you, that you're going to shut down. You're, you're, you, can't, you, know, you can't handle that. There's a box there. There's nothing going to be on the screen. I've got to write something down that's on the screen. Now, just breathe throughout the rest of the sermon. Just continue to breathe, and if that's all you can do for the rest of the time, okay. But here's what I want you to do. Those boxes there are big enough to where as we work through what we're going to see about God being our Father and God being in heaven, that you can begin to jot down some words or phrase Something that strikes you on how should I approach God because of who He is and because of where His centralized presence is. So I want you, as we work through this, maybe jot something down in those boxes that God strikes in your heart as opposed to me giving you something on the screen. So He is our Father, and that's the reason we approach Him with eagerness. So if you want to draw a line there, you see it on your bulletin, circle it, do something, you'll see that because we, He is our Father, we can approach Him with eagerness. Now, let me clarify real quick. 
I'm not talking here about God being the Father of all creation, though He certainly is. He is the Father of all creation. In, in a grand and general sense, He is the Father of everything that you and I see and hear, every person, so on and so forth. He is the Father of all creation. I'm not talking, though, about that type of, of fatherhood because that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He addresses this not to those who don't know God, but to those who are His true children through faith. And we, of course, know that as the fulfillment of Scripture uh, tells us that that true faith is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Because we realize from the very beginning, from Genesis, that we, though by nature are children of God through creation, we are rebellious and estranged children. We have not only wandered from the path, we have run from God and willfully sinned. And as a result, we are, though by nature His children, only through faith are we His true children that Jesus is talking about. And so we have this idea here that, that we become and we are the children of God, can call Him Father through a process that the Bible uses called adoption. Some of you are very familiar with the idea of adoption. You have no family, someone adopts you into a family, and you become a part of that family. The Scripture references this on several occasions. You can write down the references if you like. John chapter 1, verse 12. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. John 1, 12. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And the idea that verses will give us and the scripture gives us is that our adoption into the family of God means that our status has been transferred from being enemies of God to being his children to being in his family through faith in Jesus Christ once we were enemies now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus we are his children now this adoption occurs at the time of conversion at the moment of salvation this is not something that happens over a period of time at the moment of conversion, when grace intersects with faith and we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, we are adopted immediately into His family. And it's, it's that condition from which we operate from that moment on. It's not just about conversion, but it's also about the life we live after conversion. You are, yes, adopted into God's family at the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. But it continues. And that is your standing, not just then, in some distant sense, maybe long ago when that was, but even now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And that has immediate and eternal ramifications. Because you no longer look at God as some tyrannical, fearful monster. But now you see Him as your loving Heavenly Father. You can look trustingly and affectionately on Him. Rather than seeing Him as a slave driver, as a taskmaster, John chapter 15 says we're no longer slaves, but we are His children. We call God our Father, not because only as He created us, but because of our adoption into His family. Now the language that Matthew here uses, he says, our Father in heaven. The word there for Father is, is not exactly... Um, it, the Greek translation is a word pater, um, and, and I'm not going to bore you with Greek words because um, I would th that's not what I want to go, but, but most likely, from all that I could read and study, most likely Jesus, speaking in Aramaic, uh, spoke the word Abba. And, and that's different than the stuffy translation of father. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have ever required your children to call you father. I don't. 
Um, I, I, I think in our culture today, that term father, though is respectful, probably doesn't carry the type of relationship with it that we want with our children, by and large. And so most of the time, what are you allowed to call your father? Dad. Daddy. I have four little kids, three of whom can talk right now, and one I'm working on getting him to say daddy before he says mommy. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I tell him all the time, daddy, daddy, daddy. He's trying. He's trying. But all of them are freely allowed to call me daddy. And the terminology that Jesus uses is that personal, relational term, Abba, which is almost the equivalent in English of daddy. It's not stuffy father that you, that you respect but you don't know. That maybe you, you would call your biological father, but he's not really your dad. It's totally different than that, and it's important that we recognize the terminology that Jesus uses because that changes the game. Our Father in heaven is not some distant figure, but He is our spiritual Daddy. So when He addresses God as Abba, Jesus does in His prayers, He then turns that around and says, You all, my followers, you get to address Him the same way. But you think, well, Jesus was the Son of God. Maybe He had... A different terminology he was allowed to use, but Jesus says, look, I call him daddy. <laughs> you can too. Let that sink in. In the first century in Judaism, no one would have called God daddy. No one. They rarely called him heavenly father. No one would have called him daddy. It was a term that only little children used for their daddies. But Jesus called him daddy. And he says, you call him the same thing. And that's how we can approach God as our dad, because we have been adopted through faith into his family. And then you think about, well, if he is our dad, if he is our father in heaven, what kind of father is he? Because as soon as I say something about God being our father, your mind probably races to either something you've been taught or the home you grew up in. And for some, you didn't have the kind of father that you want to relate to. For some, you didn't have the kind of father that God is to all of us. What kind of father is God, our heavenly father? The Bible tells us very clearly that because we can call him daddy, we know he is personal to us. He's not the man upstairs. He's not the big guy in the sky. He's none of those things. He is personal. He is relational. And he desires those things with us. He's also loving. If you've got your Bible open still, look with me in Matthew chapter 7. Just flip over a page. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. He's personal. We know him as daddy, not as the man upstairs. And he's loving. Look at verse 9 of chapter 7. What man among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Now the word evil there obviously is a direct contrast between how holy and perfect God is and how imperfect we are. He's not calling us all evil, nasty, horrible people because he's speaking to those who are following him. But it's interesting that God is not portrayed as a father who's some ogre who terrifies and is cruel to all of us. Nor is he the kind of father that maybe some of you grew up with who was distant and didn't want anything to do with you. But he himself 
is the ideal father who lovingly cares for his children, takes responsibility for their spiritual and physical well-beings. And because of the fact that we are adopted into his family through faith, that he is a, a, a personal and loving father, there are some great benefits to being his children. One of those, and we see this in Psalm chapter 103, write the reference down. Let me read you these verses, I think they're important. Psalm chapter 103, verses 10 through 14. We begin to see some of the benefits of being the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see here His forgiveness and His faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve, or repaid us according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His faithful love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. One of the great benefits of being a child of God is His forgiveness, His faithfulness to us. Even when we rebel, read Luke chapter 15 sometime, you'll see the story that's become known as the story of the prodigal son who, in essence, spit in the face of his father and squandered all of his money and ran away, and yet the father there is standing at the end of the story, running toward his child to welcome that child back, to forgive all of the trespasses and all of the debts. That's the picture of God the Father, who even in our rebellion runs toward us to welcome us back and to forgive us. We receive his forgiveness, his faithfulness through our adoption into his family. We also receive his fatherly care and his discipline, which is always wise, always kind, always for our best interest. We also receive his goodwill and his acceptance. I was reading the story this week. Some of you will recognize the name David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam, the uh, serial killer from the 1970s in New York uh, who, who shot uh, his victims with a 44 pistol. He's up for parole, I believe it is next year, and, and an article came out in the, in the news that said he's not going to pursue parole. Some of you may have, have heard this, read this story, I'm not sure. But you think about those criminals who, who maybe um, have in some ways paid their debt to society. Of course, he's serving, I think, multiple life sentences. I'm not sure exactly his sentence. But, but you think about those criminals who, who get the opportunity to, to say, well, I've paid my debt to society, my time is up. They may re-enter society, but rarely do they find acceptance. Particularly those who are like him. Rarely do they find any goodwill from people. Uh, they may be looked upon with suspicion, distrust, um, maybe shunned at every, at every chance. Uh, David Berkowitz has denied his right to parole. Now, I can't judge his soul. I can only read you what the article said and what his quotes were. But what he said was, I thought, very interesting. He talks about his relationship with Jesus, and he makes an interesting point. He says, and I'm quoting, He has given me a whole new life, which I do not deserve. And while society will never forgive me, God has. Now, I can't judge this man's soul. I don't know him. I wasn't around, cognitively anyway, to know what he was doing in the 1970s and how all that terrorized New York City. I have no idea about, about his soul. All I can tell you is that if he is legitimate, then he is dead on. 
Society will likely never forgive that guy. But God can. And apparently God already has. And I don't know where you come from this morning or the things that you've done. Your family may never forgive you. Your friends may never see you be restored to one another. You may be estranged from your parents or your children for the rest of your life. I have no idea. But I can tell you this, that no matter what you have done, the Heavenly Father stands ready to forgive and to extend His goodwill and His acceptance to you, regardless of the reaction of anyone else. And I take heart in that. And I hope you do too. He has given me a whole new life which I do not deserve. And while society will never forgive me, God has. Part of being a child of God is receiving that acceptance and goodwill that He gives toward the worst of sinners, <laughs> you and me. So because of His forgiveness, His faithfulness, His care, His loving discipline, His goodwill, His acceptance, we don't have to be reluctant to enter His presence. I know there are folks here who are scared to death to talk to God. Maybe you've never done it. Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe, maybe between now and, and maybe the last time you talked to God, there's been a lot of things that have happened. And you've got some habits, and you've got some sins, and you've got some things that are going on in your life, and you just say, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Because of what we've seen is forgiveness, is faithfulness, and so on. We don't have to be reluctant or scared. We don't have to hide our weakness, to hide our sin before Him. We can be full of hope and full of confidence there's no more loneliness for us because the Bible says that even though everyone else abandons us, God will never leave us and never forsake us. So we don't come to a, a God, a Father, who's going to abandon us, maybe as yours did, or walk out on you or be distant or unapproachable. He is our Father, and praise God He is, and so we approach Him with eagerness. And secondly, we approach Him with awe. He is our Father in heaven. It means He's different from our fathers here. And some of us this morning, some of us this morning simply need to express thanks to God that He is not like the Father that we had here on earth. In a church this size, there are a variety of fathers represented. And some had great fathers. Praise God for them. Some didn't. Some never really knew your dad, your father. But God is our Father in heaven, which means He's different. <laughs> He's perfect. He's totally different. We have to recognize Him both as a personal and loving Father, but also as the sovereign God and creator of the universe. And that ensures that we'll maintain not only an eagerness, but a sense of reverence and awe when we pray. And I really think that when we begin to see and to understand who it is that invites us to call Him Father, that He is the Lord and Creator of the universe, our respect and our awe of Him grows all the more. He has indescribable majesty and power. Psalm chapter 8 highlights that. The psalmist says, because of all of those things, who is man? <laughs> who am I that you would even think of me? Who, who am I, Lord, that in your majesty and greatness you'd even consider me? He recognizes the other kind of nature of God. Heaven is a high and exalted place. and We should address ourselves to God as the one who is infinitely above us. 
Absolutely. He is our Father, and that tells us He is close. He is in heaven. That tells us we must approach Him with humility and awe. Matthew 6, and I'm not going to take the time to read all these verses, but if you, if you look over in verse 25, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through verse 34, tells us about the inexhaustible resources of our Heavenly Father. He is in heaven, which means He has inexhaustible resources. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, because I've got you covered. I'll take care of your needs. I have inexhaustible resources. He says, look, if I take care of the flowers and the birds, good grief, I can take care of you. He says, so don't be anxious. Seek first His kingdom. Go after the things of God. He has inexhaustible resources and can take care of us as well. We can pray confidently, knowing that there's no limitation to what God can do. Let me give you one final note. He says, our Father. And don't miss that little word, that little pronoun that represents the collective body that he is talking about. And because we are not in this alone, we can and must share the burdens and the sufferings of those of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christianity is not a solo effort. It is not a journey to be walked by yourself. And if you're a person who maybe is a little more introverted and people drain you, then listen up. You need folks with you. I can't put it any more plain than that. I can't put it in layman's terms for us to just get our mind around. You've got to have people with you. And praise God that He has seen fit to create the body of Christ so that none of us walks alone. That when one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one celebrates, we all celebrate. When one stumbles, we all join in to not kick them while they're down, but to help put them back on their feet. Jesus here implies that we are not alone in calling God our Father. That we also must pray for one another. Our Father who is in heaven, He says later on, give us, forgive us, do not bring us. We're in it together. And we must pray for one another. Display our love toward one another by consistently praying all these things for each other. Even, even the folks in the body of Christ that we don't like. Even the ones we disagree with. To pray for them. And because it is a collective prayer, there can be no selfishness in our prayers. Jesus taught repeatedly that the will of God and the needs of others must far and away eclipse our own needs, our own desires, our own preferences. The will of God, the needs of others, always is what's in front. Our, our own will must be crucified with Christ. Just like Sean is saying, lead me to the cross. I lay myself down so that we are selfless even in our prayers. Let me ask you, is there any terror or fear in your heart about approaching God? Is there extreme reluctance in going to God? Do you hesitate? Do you have major problems? Do you want to argue all the reasons why you shouldn't? Let, let, me, let me be honest and firm for just a second. If that's what's going on inside of you, absolute reluctance, terror, no way I'm talking to God. One of two things is likely occurring. And just like I can't judge David Berkowitz, I can't judge your soul, so hear me. One, either 
you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or secondly, you've wandered from the teaching of Scripture. One of those two things has to be occurring. Because if we know the teaching of Scripture, and we are believers in Jesus Christ, there is no fear. Reluctance gets shoved out the window because of the grace of God that overwhelms all that. And so one of two things, if you're terrified to talk to God, you don't want anything to do with Him whatsoever. Either, and I can't judge which one, only you and the Holy Spirit know. Either you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are still an enemy of God, not a child of God, or you've wandered from the teaching of Scripture, and this morning you need to say, Lord, I'm coming back, and I'm running to you with eagerness this morning, Lord, because you're my heavenly Father, because of your forgiveness and your love. And Maybe if you say, you know what, I, re I realize it's because I'm not a believer in Jesus. That same Heavenly Father that created you, that sent His Son to die for you, stands this morning with open arms, ready to receive you in faith. And so this week, and even this morning, I would challenge you and encourage you, come to God as a child, goes to His loving Father, pray as a child, just like Jesus did, calling Him Daddy. Come with confidence, with simplicity, with artlessness. Don't try to be fancy, just come and talk to God. Come to God with your guilt. Yes, He's holy, and no, we are not, so confess it. Come to God helpless, knowing that it's not through your own strength that you can accomplish anything, but humbly come to God, recognizing who you are not and who He is. Come to God even with your doubts. He can handle them. Come to God honestly. You realize He sees and knows everything you're thinking and doing already? So share the secrets with God that no one else knows. Share the shame and regret that you hide from your family and your friends. Share what otherwise is unspeakable. Share those things with the Lord. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is not to be like many of our human relationships. We talk about sports and the weather in upcoming events, and all kinds of things to keep us sort of at a surface level with people. We're pretty good at that. That's not what our relationship is like. It's to be like with God, because those relationships go nowhere. So unless you and I level with God about bitterness over unanswered prayer, about grief for losses we've faced in our own life, about guilt over anything that we've done, about this baffling sense of God's absence, Lord, where are you? Unless we level with God, that relationship will also go nowhere. You may continue to go to church. You may continue to sing each Sunday morning. You may continue to teach your class or whatever it is that you do. You may even address God sort of politely in some formal prayers. But you'll never break through that intimacy barrier rather, until you are willing to be absolutely honest, open with the Lord, and throwing yourself out there. So no matter the physical posture that you take in prayer, be sure today and this weekend from this moment on that you approach God with eagerness and with all. He is our Father in heaven. We're going to close this morning with a different song than is what's listed in your bulletin. I'm just throwing you off all over the place today. I didn't do it on purpose just to mess with you, all right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, but you can pretend I did and get mad at me. That's okay. 
But I, I want you, if you've got a hymnal in front of you, to turn to number 307. And for some, for many even, this will be a very familiar hymn. It's called Just As I Am. I thought it was fitting this morning, since we are talking about coming to God with eagerness and with all, with all of our junk, with all of our doubts, with all of our sin, that we simply close this morning with these, these first three verses, which are probably more familiar to you than maybe the others in the song. But just as I am. Here I am, Lord. I'm just I'm coming. And maybe you would physically need to come and pray. And you just kneel before the Lord and say, You know what, Lord? I'm going to come to you with all my junk. And maybe it's been a while. Or maybe this is the first time. But I want your salvation. I want that relationship with you as my Heavenly Father. And you receive it through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for you and loves you to this day. And you'd simply sing from your heart or pray from your heart, Lord, just as I am, here I, here I come. So why don't you stand with me? You've got your hymnal. I believe the words will be on the screen. We're going to look at those first three verses of Just As I Am. 